learning in our current schooling system is not defined for the outliers the people who wish to make it big all we do all the schooling system actually does is teaches them how to be passive for 12 years of their life in this episode we have michael strong joining us he's the founder of the socratic experience which is a school which is not a school but a haven for founders and budding entrepreneurs in this episode we talk about the flaws with the education modern education system how it can be improved how should founders learn new things and the art of questioning everything and the art of learning using the socratic method i hope you enjoy this episode that you get to learn something from this episode so hey michael how are you i hope you're doing well i'm, I'm very well I'm very glad to have you on the podcast i'm glad to be here yeah so i want to kick this interview off by asking you what did your relationship with education look like when you were a child so i was always you know a great student uh you know in elementary school i was in most most schools i was the best student in the class i got a's without effort school was easy um i would say in middle school i remember it starting to be kind of uh boring i always described secondary school as the most boring and cruel years of my life kids were mean and uh it was boring uh elementary school was not so bad i enjoyed being the smart kid but then when i was a high school junior i had a class where the teacher simply instead of teaching a class we simply read philosophy we read plato nietzsche buber and talked about it and i loved that and so after being bored with lectures and tests and all of that i came to love intellectual dialogue yeah so you mentioned there that uh, you were a great student so how do you define a great student and how has your thinking of a great student changed when you were a student and now no that's a good good question so you know in the conventional as a child i i don't think most children question the system too much when they are so i and i actually think a lot of the reason that education stays the way it is is those out of us who were good as a traditional school game get a lot of ego stroking from being good at it so in the you know when i was a kid being a good student means yeah i got my work done the fastest i got the best grade in the class you know a teacher asked a question i would raise my hand and get the right answer fastest um you know i think regular school is kind of a race to show that you can do the best by what the teacher in school demands of you and which are pretty much exclusively right answers and um yeah i i think for those of us who are good it's a ego boost i think for now as an adult i realize about two thirds of the class are probably humiliated every day so those are there are winners and losers and it was great to be a winner but i think it's not good for those who are not the winners um i would say as i became more philosophical and i understood the complexity of life i realized that all the most interesting questions in life are not right answer wrong answer uh whether it's in science where scientists are competing to find the most ev- the best evidence based um you know position and scientists are always arguing with each other or in other fields it it takes a lot of creativity and um debate and energy to come up with quality work and so i think that i i actually i was talking to a student who scores very highly on iq tests the other day and he only thought that learning was about information and so i had to explain to him that's a tiny percentage uh you uh, know in some ways information is a lagging indicator of what it means to be a great thinker so i would say now i'm much more interested in students who are thoughtful and reflective or creative or entrepreneurial who exhibit traits well beyond the memorize and forget characteristic of standard schooling so why don't students realize that uh education is more than just uh, learning memorizing anything well i would i would say maybe a very tiny percent who grow up in homes that are highly intellectual do um you know there are uh there's a blogger uh, henrik carlson who writes about the childhoods of exceptional people and many of the most famous people in history grew up in homes where they talked about ideas where famous people would visit you know in some ways they're homeschooled but it's not homeschool it's they're just immersed in a rich culture so a tiny tiny percentage of students have those opportunities today but again most young people respond to the system when your child 
if you know your parents send you to a school, the school asks you to sit in your desk and you know do the assignment and raise your hand. It's a ritual. I see schooling has become a blind ritual that occasionally corresponds with learning, but mostly does not. And most people, sadly, around the world at this point, just accept this blind, meaningless ritual as if it had something to do with learning. And and related to this topic, why don't teachers uh, promote the these values and that memorizing anything is not enough for life? No, Apart from a... the fact uh, that their livelihoods depend on it. Apart from that. Yeah, no, I, I think... So part of it, two things. One is, again, I think teachers who themselves have had a, a good education, they really become thoughtful people, try to put this in their classrooms, and some do very successfully. Um, I do want to you know, mention there are some heroic teachers that do a fabulous job despite the framework of schooling. Um, I also like, I personally like to hire teachers who have also been in the real world professionally for at least a year or two. And, know whether it's entrepreneurship or sales or you know retail or construction anything just being in the real world um, often leaves us with teachers who connect school learning with real learning and that's invaluable so I would say there are a lot of great teachers who do try to do this I would say despite the school system the other key factor is how much autonomy a school system gives teachers you know I think there are <clears throat> I think the best private schools often give teachers quite a lot of autonomy and therefore, if they hire great teachers and the teachers have a lot of autonomy, then I think private schools can give uh, good education. Um, but certainly in the United States, teachers have had less and less autonomy in the last few decades. 30 years ago, a public school teacher could do a lot, and there were great public school teachers who did their own thing. Now, because of test score anxiety and test score pressure, accountability measures, teachers have less and less autonomy. And so they're kind of forced to march through a narrow curriculum without uh, being allowed to have or encouraged to have the kind of digressions to make learning meaningful. Now, yeah, that was an interesting point. So related to the test scores part, why do you think are test scores considered important? Apart from acting like a, a like satisfactory a thing, why, why do you think? You know, that, that's a good question. Think? So a couple of things. Um, you know, I, I do think tests can play a role, um, but they ideally they're one role. So first of all, uh, you know, in the U.S., the most important college admissions test is the SAT, and there's a verbal section and a math section. And just on the verbal section, a lot of it is a high-level reading test. And I do think reading ability is really important. The ability to read difficult material is important. Um, and so I actually, you know, like the SAT, but if and only if uh, one is a college-bound student, and if and only if that college-bound student you know, cares about um, you know, high-level academics, then it, you know, it's a decent measure of can you read difficult material. The math section is also, uh, you know, can you solve, I would say, more challenging problems than is the norm, and often quickly, there's a time limit. So, um, and it does benefit from training and practice, so students who get a lot of training and practice on the SAT. But what I think the overemphasis on it does is, A, there are millions of students who can have great careers, uh, not just great college careers, but great professional careers, including in STEM, without doing especially well on the SCT. And so that the notion of the be-all and end-all, it should be one factor among many. I encourage our students to have um, real-world accomplishments in addition to whatever test scores they have. And any decent college admissions committee will look at their real-world accomplishments. Because actually, to make the obvious, in the real world, what people care about is what you've accomplished. Um, so, you know, test scores can be some information, but because they're relatively easy to administer and evaluate, there's a huge over-reliance on test scores. And it's harder to say just create a portfolio or an entrepreneurial portfolio. It's harder to evaluate that sort of thing. Uh, although actually, as um, kind of a relevant aside, I'm, I'm very interested in alternative systems for evaluation, precisely because tests limit us so much. So I've known quite a number of software developers who get in head life, yeah, head in life through GitHub. You know, they have a basically a portfolio on GitHub, and if their work is respected by other developers on GitHub, that's more valuable than any test score. And uh, I see GitHub as sort of an example, and there are things on GitHub in addition to software. I, I see. 
um, those sorts of online platforms as a way to demonstrate proficiency and ability and allow at scale a more nuanced understanding of human abilities beyond one-dimensional test scores. Yeah. Now, one thing came to my mind related to this. Uh, governments, like you gave the example of GitHub, but it's we are talking about a very small proportion of the population, but governments, they want uniformity, of course, because they have to serve to a very large audience, if, if you may put it that way. So how would you recommend or what evaluation system would you use at a very large scale? So you mentioned governments right away. I think the biggest problem with education is government involvement um, because government, um, there's a wonderful book by a man named James Scott called Seen Like a State. And, you know, he talks about how um, some one of the examples are the mass starvations under communism. But he also talks about Brasilia, you know, an artificially created city. And he says that when, when the state uh, makes decisions, it's very limited in what it can do because it's not a very smart actor. The state is a pretty stupid actor at the end of the day. And I think one of the greatest tragedies is that we've tied education to government. Because you're right, government wants simple metrics. And um, as a consequence, we uh, this is certainly what's happening in the United States, because government can only measure simple things like test scores, I see public schools in the United States causing a huge mental health crisis because they completely ignore the well-being of young people just to optimize for test scores. Um, so ultimately, I think the only form of uh, accountability for any education system is are the parents and students satisfied? And you can imagine, you know, the worlds of martial arts or music, uh, you know, if you go to a violin teacher, it's because people have said this is a great violin teacher. You know, there, you, you don't take a quantitative test uh, to see which percentage of the students got to such and such. You know, it might be useful information, uh, but you look at this human being. And so I think education and human development, I see education as a subset of human development. It is so important. We need to allow for the full sensitivity of humans to evaluate the full sensitivity of other human beings and no government involvement at all. It's something called the separation of school and state uh, that I'm, I'm a big believer of. So the first thing we need to do is to get government out of it precisely because of that problem. So if we uh, get the government out of it, then what or how will the education take place like for the minority of the population who are living in poverty because private companies won't go there so government government is not the yeah. so that's a good question so first um there's a wonderful book um called the beautiful tree by james tooley um james tooley you know he, he had the perception most people do that right private schools don't serve the poorest of the poor but meanwhile in india and then later in nigeria and then later in that china Basically, around the world, you discover there are informal schools serving the poorest of the poor. Very often, they're just, you know, under a tin roof on a dirt street corner. Uh, there are kids going to these tiny, uh, very, very poor schools. And parents, even very low-income parents, pay them because they realize uh, their children get a better education. I know in the research in India, while the standard test score data was about the same for those and these informal so these are not the fancy formal private schools that are authorized by the government. These are tiny informal things. Um, well, the standard test scores were about the same. They scored better on English because of English fluency as a path to a better job. Um, and so they're already out there. I would be open to some kind of program to subsidizing them if we can avoid control. So in the United government control. So in the United States, there's something called educational scholarship accounts where parents can um, spend the uh, it's usually less than the full per people expenditure, but they can spend a portion of the per, per people expenditure on any of thousands of different vendors. So in Arizona, for instance, they passed universal ESAs last fall, and uh, we're the Socratic Experience is one of you know thousands of vendors available. So a parent could get yoga lessons, they could get math lessons, they could get a computer for their kid. You know, they can get all kinds of things. And, and that's the other thing with online education. If one has access to the internet and a, you know, even a Chromebook, one can learn anything for free. You know, with younger children, they need some instruction, but once they can read and navigate the internet, in theory, 
all of learning is available for free for, via the internet right now. Um, so, so that's again, if we can, uh, you know, find a way to substitute instead of the money that governments are spending on education, put it directly in the hands of parents, uh, so they get some small savings account, scholarship account um, that they can use as they see fit. Uh, some parents will make bad decisions, and that's okay. Uh, bad things are happening in public schools right now. But over time, I think most parents will make much better decisions than the government does. Do you think it is possible for us to reach a point of time where this is possible? Governments completely washing their hands off of education. That's a good question. I, th I think so. Again, in the United States, the ES ESA program has it started with Arizona since then, just in the last six months. Um, about six other states have passed similar legislation. There are another six states where it's uh, in the works. And some of this is both supply and demand. My concern is that um, if the government passes this, provides the money for the parents, but there are not very many interesting options for parents, then we won't see much of an impact. And gradually, there will be more uh, government control over how these funds are spent. Conversely, if those of us offering innovative options can meet the supply and also create a movement to demand educational freedom, then you know, then I think the future is bright. It'll be three steps forward, two steps back, as with anything. But you know, most of my parents uh, are entrepreneurs or creative professionals. So certainly in the United States, uh, you know, Elon Musk founded a school for his children. And it was completely unorthodox. Steve Jobs is famous for criticizing public schools for criticizing. Um, stopping creativity. I think a lot of the entrepreneurial elite in the United States, tech elite, realize that school is garbage. Um, and so uh, what I see in order to liberate ourselves from the Prussian education model is for the elites to pioneer new kinds of education that look nothing like traditional education. Then as we get kind of going from the innovators to the early adopters, broader adoption of these different models and then a demand that government reduce the strings attached to the funding so that their children can have access to these kind of models that's kind of a path to a liberated future of education they mentioned a small part about uh, elon musk and a lot of pioneers now added to that i would like to ask a question which was going on in my mind before the recording um so most of the people that we see the let's talk about history also uh, like warriors then we talk about steve jobs philosophers they instead of having teachers they had mentors who guided through them through their way so what do you think do you think mentors are more important than teachers well absolutely and just one way um i think of this is you know in indigenous cultures we did not have schools you know in a traditional tribe, uh, boys would learn to hunt and girls would learn to gather. And they'd do so often four or five. They'd start, you know, either playing around. You know, boys would hunt with bows and arrows and maybe eventually at six and seven start catching little rabbits or whatnot. Um, and, and then they would, they would look up to the older boys. And then as they entered puberty, sometimes there's a rite of passage and they, they join the men's hunting groups. Um, but they would look up to the greatest exemplars uh two or three older you know everyone knows that peer pressure is powerful everyone knows that um you know mentors are powerful uh in a traditional culture we're looking at human excellence within our tribe however that's defined and we really appreciate the attention of a you know it could be a, an elder or it could be the the best hunter in the group or whatever it is um, i find that young people are naturally inclined to look for guidance from those whom they respect and they'll, they're immediately receptive. Kind of going back to the regular school, one of the problems with regular school is often students don't have any particular respect for the teachers. Um, it works better when they do, but you can't force respect. And often they don't want to learn what's being taught. Whereas if they see what's being taught as valuable, then they really want to learn. So basically we're trying to force students into forms of learning with, by people, taught by people they don't care about, when the alternative is a more natural cultural form of learning where it's spontaneous. And I think in the modern world, we, we do need to structure that to some extent, but I'll give you some examples. Um, I've got a 11-year-old boy whose father is a real estate developer 
and his father is having him calculate the financial model for solar energy collectors for schools, multi-million dollar deals. And you know, this 11-year-old kid is really excited to be participating in it. And so he's um, spontaneously engaged in the kind of activity that his father is doing. And you know, I think that kind of internship, apprenticeship, mentor, whatever you call it, is so motivating. Kids learn so much from it. I also have a student who uh, actually on his own arranged an internship with an architect. He met the architect, talked the architect into giving him an internship, and took a semester off of school just to intern. And so I think that's exactly right. Classroom learning, I don't think we'll completely see the disappearance of classroom learning. Occasionally it might be useful to go off and take a Python class or whatever. But I think classroom learning should be, whether it's online with free online resources or you know, in a brick and mortar school, I think it should be a small percentage of the mix. And kids should be out there interning, apprenticing with mentors, doing things, and then bopping in and taking classes when it's useful and going back and forth. Uh, yeah, school should be this occasional activity that sometimes happens when it's useful or needful. Or maybe they want to be a PhD mathematician that's lots of school. But for most people, school should be a minor percentage of the mix. Yep, now you mentioned the internship, but that was very interesting. So how, how old was this boy or girl? So, so the, the one with his father was 11. The, the older one with an architect, he was 16. Um, but you know, I, there's a famous case. There's a woman named Laura Deming who at the age of 12 got herself to intern with world-class anti-aging researcher. And so she talked her way into that. And this gets into another piece is for me, one of the most important characteristics of successful people is taking initiative. And school, John Taylor Gatto, a New York State Teacher of the Year, describes conventional education as 12 years of training in how to be passive and dependent. And I think we're damaging kids so much by telling them to sit still and do as they're told. We should be telling them, create a dream, create a vision for yourself. Who do you want to become? What do you want to learn? How do you want to get there? And we're here as mentors to support you. This is very much our school model as a Socratic experience. We're here to support you in finding what you need, but then you need to go out there and get it. And you know, I often joke that uh, I learned more from sending cold call emails than from a college degree. You know, The art of reaching out to people to get what you want is absolutely invaluable. And, and you find, you know, Steve Jobs at the age of 12 was calling, uh, you know, Bill Hewlett at Hewlett and Packard and basically got Hewlett to be a mentor for him when he was 12. You know, people, great entrepreneurs take initiative early on. We need to encourage all students to take initiative early on. So how do, do you think this taking an initiative, the push comes from inside the child or can it be taught? Great question. I'd say, you know, there's uh, perhaps a normal curve. At one end of the curve, there are kids that are just spontaneously go-getters, and they'll do it no matter how much you try to stop them. At the other end of the curve, there are probably kids that are so passive, nothing we can do would get them to take initiative. But I think in between then, how we how we mentor them, how we educate them, the expectations we set, um, the both at the you know school level, the mentor level, the parent level, the societal level, all those expectations can shift things. I've certainly... Sometimes I've just given kids permission to take initiative when I've told them that, you know, they don't have to go through the state system. Uh, I, I, I happen to know a lot about how to kind of hack your way into college or careers without going through the system. And once I explain to them, okay, if you don't want to go through the system, this is how you do it. These three paths, whatever. I've met a lot of students who instantly take charge of their lives. And I've had other students who came in passive, but over time, and warmed up. Sometimes I describe working with kids who have been in regular schools as wet firewood. And it's a matter of first we have to dry it out and then put little sparks and gradually get the sparks to a flame and eventually have a crackling fire. But they've been so taught to be passive that it's a lot of work. Some people in the unschooling movement talk about de-schooling, that there's a period of you know, semester or year of basically, sometimes they don't do very much when they're coming away from it because they're expecting to be told what to do. The system so crushed their natural appetite for learning. And for this reason, by the way, I think the earlier parents shift their children onto an alternative track, the better, precisely because once a student is 15 and been told what to do all the time, it's much harder for them to learn to take initiative. I want to have you noticed where uh, from the inside they feel that they should start taking initiative. 
That's a good question. And really, again, it is continuous. I think there are some children who maybe in utero are kind of <laughs> fighting for their own freedom, so to speak. Um, but I think, you know, just in terms of developmental psychology, I think puberty is a really important transition. So a lot of people, you know, thinking of the biological aspects of puberty, you know, kids, you know, develop in terms of sexually and they become smelly and they have bad attitude and things like that. But I think they also want to become their own human beings. They want to individuate. I think psychologically, as they go through puberty, they want to uh, have control over their lives. And again, in traditional cultures, there was rite of passage. Uh, you just go start hunting with men when you're 13 or whatever. And I think controlling kids after puberty and forcing the ones who are not good at school to be humiliated every day for another six years is horrible. And so for me, um, the, I see puberty and I've actually thought of having rites of passage. We do little versions of it where, hey, now you're responsible for your own learning. Now we expect you to have goals. Now we expect you to figure out um, and we would support them. It's not just, you know, throwing them in the swimming pool, so to speak. Um, but I think uh, at puberty is a really important time to get them to take full ownership of their life and education with mentors and support and resources and so forth. Yeah, I actually learned to code when I was 11. So I know that it's good to have a head start. It helps a lot. Huge. Huge, exactly. Well, and, and just kind of the other thing is, you know, you've probably heard of 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to become world-class at something. Um, what people don't realize is, yeah, if you start to code at 11 or nine or 10 or whatever, uh, or even 12 or 13, by the time you're 18, you could have your kind of 10,000 hours of practice in and be, you know, actually seriously good at it. Just a couple of anecdotes there. I have, we just graduated a student who started coding at nine and he created a Minecraft mod company, it's Jay Agrawal is his name. Uh, and he received 1.2 million in venture capital last fall at the age of 16. And uh, it's quite possible that his company could be worth 20 or 30 million by the time he's in his early 20s. And, you know, just a kid who loved to code and, you know, liked the idea of creating mods for Minecraft and then took off and created a whole company. Uh, with Minecraft mods. Uh, and another kid who actually learned to code in Minecraft and self-taught. And by the age, by the time he was 16, he was managing, he was working for a startup in San Francisco, managing teams of computer science graduates from the Ivy League. Uh, so here this kid uh, had the expertise equivalent to Ivy League graduates in computer science. You know, and I think, again, as you know, if, if you start young and get serious about something, you can be extraordinary by the time you're 18. For sure. Now, I want to, like, the society as a whole, right now in the current state, is divided into, divided into two sections. The one who goes to the traditional job path and the other one who are basically entrepreneurs. Now, do you think questioning everything and Socratic method of learning is useful for both of them or does it come in handy for entrepreneurs? So good question, and again, I'll make a continuum. So first of all, I think, you know, with AI and robotics and so forth, the importance of thinking for yourself and taking initiative is greater than ever before in history. You know, in terms of career possibilities, uh, I think those people who are better at thinking for themselves and taking initiative will be more successful across the board. The more easily one is being replaced, the more quickly one's being replaced or one's job options become um, very, very low end. And so often when people think entrepreneur, they think Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, but I'll give you a bunch of examples sort of in between. First, just digital marketing. Uh, I've known a lot of kids who are really good at digital marketing and they, you know, right now their expertise in different there's the creative side, and then there's also the kind of automations and tech side. There are different platforms, you know, TikTok and Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn, and you know, different people specialize Instagram and different platforms. Um, there are different ways to optimize different kinds of social media marketing initiatives. Um, there are different kinds of clients to serve, and I see all of that. Even though, and the best digital marketers I know are already using AI to, so they can get more work done more quickly. But they are the big picture thinkers who kind of integrate all of these systems and create a custom match between the customer and the marketing campaign 
that they use tech to help them develop. And one way to think about that is I once met a UI UX developer here in the United States making 500 bucks an hour for big corporate clients like Pizza Hut. And asked, why is it that people are paying you 500 bucks an hour? Why don't they outsource to India for five bucks an hour or whatever? And he said, I know better than the customer what the customer wants. And as an educator, I thought about that. And I thought, how do we educate people? So it's not just this is how you master the Facebook algorithm. This is how you learn Python or whatever. Uh, and I also know somebody who's a um, leading corporate software trainer in the US. And he says about half of software training is the coding and about half is communications and understanding the customer. Uh, and some of the people in this world say, hey, we're not afraid of being replaced by AI because the customer has no idea what they want. <laughs> and so uh, if the customer doesn't know what they want, how, how can they tell the AI? And so I see this process of matching the ultimate needs of the user or the customer, whoever, which may be quite invisible uh, for everybody. The customer doesn't know it, the you know, marketer or digital or so whatever, nobody knows exactly what's needed. And I think the sophisticated learning is how do we help people understand what's needed? Uh, and I think that's, again, as an educator, really interesting, really sophisticated sorts of things. Um, kind of going in a different realm, in the mechanical realm, I have a former student I met with on Saturday, and he always loved to be mechanical. He started off uh, getting a degree in um, nautical engineering, thought he might want to work on uh, engines of big ships. He was bored and dropped out and started working in a machine shop. But ultimately now he's working on big engines um, for power plants that are like 20, 30, 40 feet high, these huge engines. And he's working on old engines from 100 years ago where the parts are no longer available. So he has to custom machine each part and kind of every repair of every engine, these engines are running power plants such that uh, if they go down, the company can lose millions of dollars very quickly. So they've got an incentive to pay somebody who can provide a custom solution for a broken engine. And you know, there's no there's no course on how to machine custom parts for any of you know a hundred different engine models that are all you know obsolete at this point. So he's kind of using original custom solving for machines. And right now he's a salaried employee; he's not making much. But he and I talked about it, and he's ready to go off on his own and become an independent consultant, basically entrepreneur of his own company. So that's not tech in the traditional you know digital realm. It's old fashioned machines, but still that high-end problem-solving, great customer service, those sorts of characteristics are invaluable. Um, just give you another one. My favorite definition of an entrepreneur is somebody who stays awake at night thinking about what sucks and how to fix it. And uh, a lot of my students are creatives. And so the world is not beautiful enough. Um, how do we make the world more beautiful? You know, if you think as a creative, you're gonna make money by doing a watercolor on, uh, you know, some online platform, forget it. That's, you're not gonna, you're not gonna make money. But uh, everybody, I, I knew somebody who created hand-carved front doors. And instead of getting a cheap front door from Home Depot, wouldn't they want this $5,000 hand-carved beautiful front door? Of course they would. You know, somebody else, a creative who creates sculptures in the home where there are trees and hands and bodies just appearing out of walls. And, you know, it's really fabulous and gorgeous and a cool effect. And so I see um, these people taking initiative to create beauty and meaning and purpose until the world is ever more wonderful in every respect. So, yeah, I see uh, because all of us want a higher quality of life, ultimately I see 8 billion people waking up every day, creating a higher quality of life for others through their initiatives. And we let the robots and the AI do all the boring stuff. We all get to do all the cool, fun stuff. They mentioned a small part about the mechanical engineering part. So how do you think, how does this relate to Socratic learning? Like if you can give a perspective on that. And absolutely. So again, basically, we're always, instead of traditional teaching is the teacher has, you know, the knowledge, they lecture the student, the student takes notes, memorizes notes, passes the test. It's, uh, you know, occasionally students manage to be active in that process, but it's mostly passive. We're always asking students, what do you think and why? What do you think and why? And so in a mechanical situation, why is this engine not working and why? What can you do to fix it and why? What solutions might be possible and why? We're always putting the initiative on the learner or the human being to figure things out. And in a way, um, you know, Nike has a solution just, or this tagline, just do it. Uh, in a way, my tagline, my implicit tagline as an educator is just figure it out. And of course, it turns out it's really hard, but um, you know, I have a great respect for the 19th century, you know, Yankee ingenuity, uh, people like Andrew Carnegie and Thomas Edison, you know, great entrepreneurs. 
Uh, Thomas Edison and Carnegie, they both got their start in life as professionals around 13. So no formal education. Nobody taught them how to create the entire steel industry the way Carnegie did and optimize it. Nobody taught them to invent the light bulb and phonograph and tons of other things like Edison did. No, they had this attitude of let's figure it out. And so again, I think if we live in a culture where thinking hard about problems, working hard about problems, uh, how does this work? How does that work? How does this connect? How does that connect? Uh, figuring things out, understanding the world as habits, day in, day out habits. I think that's the ultimate learning. And again, we have all online resources. You need this bit of information, Google it. You know, there's a YouTube video on everything on earth you want to learn. Um, but this propensity to always be trying to figure things out is, I think of it as a cultural characteristic that I'm trying to cultivate by Socratic education. And if, if students become such autodidacts, they don't need, need me by the time they're 12, 13, 14, whatever, hurrah. I totally celebrate kids who just go off and build their lives at whatever age. Um, but for students who are still not there or, or have particular things they want to think about with us, I'm happy to help them there as well. So now related to this specific point in Socratic learning, so what we see traditional education, one thing if I have to say, Traditional education has a structure, so but that is what's missing in the Socratic learning. But now one thing I'll have to add here in order to support this argument. So I don't know if you have seen this graph. It's a chart, actually. It's very popular. So how much you know, how much you don't know, and how much you don't know that you don't even know. Yeah. So how does... So don't you think traditional education is a little bit better in this case? Oh, great question. So a couple things. First, I think of the various disciplines, mathematics is the most linear. Uh, mathematics is the case where you know, it builds cumulatively the most. And so I think uh, some kind of a path in math is most important. There are a lot of, you know, Khan Academy is very famous, but there are a lot of math platforms that provide the sequence. More broadly, I would say, something that I'm very interested in developing, we sort of do it implicitly in our school, but I want to develop for the public, are really uh, maps of learning. So something that those of us who have learned a lot can provide our maps, and I'm looking at structuring it, I'm actually working with a student on this as a summer project, is kind of a flowchart or decision tree. So that if you are in the early stages and you don't know what you don't know, um, you can go down to different uh, decision points and say, do I know this, do I not know this? Am I interested in this, am I not interested in this? Um, are these kinds of things I like to do or not? And you can imagine, and again, I don't wanna be a monopolist. I think we need many, many competing versions of these um, kind of learning spaces so that an autodidact has great tools, and some of it is getting into communities. So some of it could be in the decision tree or flowchart. Okay, this leads to this set of five curricula or YouTube videos, but some of it might be, you know, go go join the community at GitHub and you know, you know, present your material there. That is, I see a very rich and multi-dimensional set of resources at every node along the decision tree, and uh, re really, ultimately, infinite branching. The idea is it's open source so that anybody can uh, can add branches. Oh, you know, Michael didn't remember that branch. We need to have that branch. And so you could have your old Advic branch where these are the you know 50 branches that you're taking off on. Uh, because I do think, yeah, this knowledge, it goes back to mentors. Part of what I do as a mentor is I have so much bigger a picture than young people. I can instantly in a conversation provide them with the 50 branches they need. Whereas insofar as I want to empower autodidacts, we need tools, accessible tools. You know, the YouTube algorithm re recommends videos, but it's not structured to optimize learning by any means. A lot of times it's garbage in terms of a learning sequence. How does, so you, we talked about the structure. Now, how does questioning take a part in this? Oh, great, great question. So an, an analogy I like, which I ultimately got from Julian Jaynes, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, a book which I love, is that consciousness is like a flashlight in the attic. And so, you know, we can kind of, uh, we, we do a lot that we're unconscious of. You know, a lot of times we go to the fridge to get something to eat and we don't even, you know, remember that we went there or we, you know, get in the car and drive somewhere. We do a lot that's unconscious, but um, our conscious brain, our, our brain conserves energy and our brain consumes a lot of energy. It's a, 
uh, energy hog. And so our conscious mind is very precious. And so I, I look at a, um, kind of a flashlight in the attic. What are we focusing on? And what questions do is it helps students to focus on particular things. So, you know, just the narrow case in Socratic seminars in our school, a lot of what we do is learn to read and not learn to read only, you know, the elementary reading, but learn to analyze difficult texts. And a lot of that is helping students learn to break down a complex paragraph into sentences and phrases and ideas. Why the semicolon there? Why did the author use this adjective? Um, you know, most students are not accustomed to deep, careful analytical reading. But similarly, when we work on math problems, you know, there's a brain teaser maybe. The students have no idea how to solve it. And so math guide might ask questions. Hmm, what if we rotate the diagonal in this manner? What if we try to slice the diagonal in that manner? You know, get ask questions to get them to see the problem in different ways. Because I think part of what being an experienced learner is, experienced autodidactic, experienced problem solver, is realizing that often one needs to look at things in lots of different ways. And so I see the questioning process as training students over and over again to look at uh, different situations in different ways and deploy their own consciousness, give them control of the light in the attic so they can kind of look all around and see what's going on there. Or in the case of a math problem or fixing an engine, okay, this didn't work, let's try this. This didn't work, let's try that. Just another resource I like is uh, Georg Puglia, one of the great Hungarian 20th century mathematicians, wrote a book called How to Solve It. And a lot of what he's trying to do there, which we use in our program, is give students a broad repertoire of problem-solving strategies. He says he'd rather have a student who can solve one problem six different ways than six problems the same way. Um, and so I think part of the questioning is just giving students an awareness of just, in a way, it's how do you know what you don't know? And it's not that we can teach them what they don't know, but we give, give them the expectation that there's basically an infinite space to be uncovered. And if they're stuck, What's the next question that might help them get them a bit unstuck, less unstuck? Um, Scott Buchanan, the founder of the St. John's program where I learned my Socratic practice, said uh, for him, Socratic learning is I know what I know, I know what I don't know, and therefore what I need to know. And I think that's that last piece is I know what I know, I know what I don't know, what do I need to know? And then if you can ask the question about what you need to know, and just a tangible version of this, for me, Google is a superpower. I can Google anything instantly. I find that most people are not as empowered with Google as I am because they don't know even what to ask for. Whereas I have enough knowledge that I can narrow down the question. I can look for search terms that, boom, take me right where I want to go. So that uh, question asking is your awareness of what your current knowledge map is, where the gaps are, and therefore where you need to ask to fill the missing spaces. Yep, so I want to... Uh, from what you said, I want to ask two questions. The first is, how do you go about the analytical reading part? What is analytical reading? And yeah, sure, sure. So first, I've got a book, The Habit of Thought, um, from Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice, that goes into this. But uh, a basic format that we use is, and sometimes with more advanced students, we have them read, you know, books and articles outside of class. With less advanced students, sometimes we'll read something in class. Uh, but in middle school, we'll read, you know, difficult philosophy. We read Plato and Buber in middle school. Um, and we read sometimes paragraph by paragraph, but we'll read a very dense paragraph. My ideal paragraph, by the way, is one where the student students understand every word, but have no idea what the paragraph said. You know, it's so, and sometimes poetry can be like this too, uh, where they read it and like, what? And I love that response because then it provides them with a puzzle they need to solve. And so then we ask, the guide will ask questions of the group. Um, so what is the author talking about? What makes sense? What doesn't? Um, why did the author start it in this way? Sometimes we'll do it sentence by sentence. What does this first clause mean? Um, if we don't understand it, do we need to look up words? Uh, again, we help them look in a very granular ma manner at every aspect of the paragraph. So one exercise I've used both for students and also adults when I'm training them to do this is if you take a dense philosophical text or poetry or whatever, um, can you ask initially one discussable question, three discussable questions, five discussable questions, 20 discussable questions, 50 discussable questions. You know, in a paragraph from you know, Kant, I could probably ask 50 discussable questions. But initially, both students and teachers have a very hard time. And a discussable question is one that's not factual, not right or wrong, 
you know, where there's legitimate uncertainty. And one way to think about it is why did the author choose this word instead of that? Why did the author do this punctuation instead of that? If you start to try to get inside the head of the author, wow, it's really, really hard to figure out why they're doing things like that. Or what's the conceptual scheme? Ultimately, I see us going beyond um, the literal words on the page to try to understand the overall philosophical worldview of the author based on the way they have selected words and sentences and so forth. Um, so it's it's a matter of uh, having the text explode with meaning, so to speak. Um, we once read, I once was reading William James on habit with a group of students. And the, you know, initially students thought of habits as picking their nose or biting their fingernails or you know, the kind of things their moms get on their case about. But ultimately, they, he was talking about emotional habits and intellectual habits. And they said, hey, you're giving us the habit of thinking about everything we read. Like, exactly. I want your mind to be on fire. A lot of times, the way I read texts of any interesting text is I'm always arguing with the, the text. Mortimer Radler, one of the um, mentors in our movement, said has a book called How to Read a Book. And we should be, there's a whole thing about annotating books, but it's really arguing. You know, when I read a book, like, you idiot, I can't believe you said that. Why, you know, that kind of, that kind of aggressive back and forth. And if you're doing that, of course, you're trying to make sense of things, whereas that's so different from um, what's the right answer for the test. It's active engagement with every aspect of the text. Yeah. So, like you said that you teach the students to kind of argue with the text. How does this help in real life, practically speaking? No, great question. So, uh, again, a lot of it is... Um, so I, I'll give you one example. I have a YouTube channel uh, called Socratic Michael Strong, where uh, I began uh, having Socratic dialogues once a week with a girl named Alana when she was four. She's now 10. And by weekly Socratic dialogues, she's been become incredibly articulate. She is working through a college-level Python course at the age of 10. But with some help, we have uh, you know a guide she can ask questions, and she has another student she's working through it. But she's mostly working through it on her own. And how does it help? Well, she realizes when uh, you know object-oriented programming was by far, by no means obvious to her. So when she got to a section on object-oriented programming at the age of ten, what is that? What's an object? Uh, what do they mean by you know an object in this context? Uh, or what's a loop? You know, how do we know what's a loop? You know, all of these concepts. So a basic Python course where maybe an adult think, oh, it's just this tech. No, understanding what uh, coding is and what Python is, is conceptually rich. And if a student doesn't understand the concepts, they need to ask questions until they do. And they can ask the questions from an adult, from a peer, from online, they can Google it or whatever. But they ultimately, I see it as, each learner needs to come up with a clear internal criterion for do I understand or not? Which in a way sounds trivial. Of course you should. But most people are actually clueless as whether they understand something or not. Um, there's a whole literature on metacognition, which is kind of thinking about thinking, being aware of your thinking, being aware of your cognition. Uh, but part of it, a really big part of it, again, do I know what I know, know what I don't know what I need to know? I find that really great autodidacts are exceptionally good at monitoring their level of understanding so they can identify, okay, here I need to pause and I go deep on the object-oriented programming. Bloop, I get it, I can rush through that. And in order to optimize our learning, we need to be really good at that. Uh, where do I need to go deeply? Where do I skip over? Um, how do I optimize in real time, whatever I'm learning? Yeah. Now, you mentioned a lot of guides. So guides are these part of the part of the Socratic experience? Yeah, yeah. So we call them guides rather than teachers because the role is to ask questions and mentor rather than to teach. Uh, you know, occasionally you might tell students something five minutes. I always say that uh, if a guide is talking at students more than five or 10 minutes, it's almost certainly too long. Maybe once or twice a year, more than five or 10 minutes at a time might be okay. But mostly we're asking questions and mentoring. And so that's why the metaphor of a guide rather than a teacher is appropriate. Uh, but our basic model is that we have a 15 to 1 ratio uh, guide to students, and then the students meet with a guide one-on-one -on -one as a mentor every two weeks. Uh, and one way to think about the mentoring is uh, professional coaches. At this, you know, at this point, CEOs hire professional coaches to optimize their experience. So, you know, a lot of adults, especially high-performing adults, want some another human being to help them uh, optimize their pathway. And so I see if I want to create world-class autodidacts, I need to have them 
be mentored by and entrepreneurs, you know, people who create their own lives, they need human, high quality human mentoring in order to get there. Um, so yeah, that's why they're guides. Yeah, so just like we discussed before in the teachers versus mentors part. Exactly, exactly. Built into our program. Yeah, that, that's an that's an incredible thing. I think I've learned more from mentors rather than teachers. That of might course. be a little disrespectful, but yeah. Yeah, and a lot of this is uh, also customized. I mean, one of the problems with regular teaching is you know, just take a math class. It's hard for a teacher to teach the top third, the middle third, and the bottom third of the math class because the the readiness and ability is so great, and so you know, even at the level of one third, two thirds of the class are not being served well. But even there, within any given third, the top one percent, the and and then not everything is linear as math, and even math isn't that linear. But um, in a conversation, a one-on-one conversation with a mentor, uh, an adult can quickly help optimize that the particular need of that learner right there. Whereas, uh, yeah, teaching is not optimized. This is why Bloom Bloom's tu- tutoring. Uh, is known for having such high performance gains is because you can optimize for the learner instead of uh, the masses, so to speak. Now we talk a lot about questions. So I want to ask a few questions regarding questions. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think is the goal of a question? Great question. So there are multiple goals. A goal of a question, the most important goal is usually to get a child to think or another human being to think. Um, but sometimes it might be more focused than that. Sometimes it's to think broadly. Sometimes it might be to get them to pay attention to a very particular detail. Ultimately, I see um, Socratic learning as mutual ex- expectation uh, of logical consistency and coherency, which is a really big, deep philosophical claim. But a lot of times, a question helps the other person. What are you not focusing on? Again, the flashlight in the attic. I'm asking a question to try to get them to focus on some aspect of their experience or their learning that they're not currently focused on. So getting them to think, but often with a certain direction where I perceive they have a blind spot. Yep. So one, when do you stop asking questions? So if a student is ready to go do something, again, I'm very aware that, you know, there's kind of a uh, discrepancy between think and do. So sometimes we need to think and learn and understand. Sometimes we just need to go do stuff. Um, so there, there's a point, you know, where, you know, especially in a company or in real world projects where, uh, hey, let's quit talking about it. Let's just go do it. And so I, I think we need to realize when is this kind of conceptual understanding part useful and necessary versus when is it um, let's get in teams and get stuff done. Yeah. Now, uh, related to the teams part. So let's say they are in in one team. There are two people. Uh, one who has been uh, trained using the Socratic method, and the other one who has gone through the traditional schooling process. Now there will be gaps in how they communicate and how they understand. So how do you think you can battle that? So I think the best and one of the things that makes me optimistic is I think. Most people, I, I see um, inquiry, asking questions, a culture of inquiry as a culture. And I think that um, if people are open and respect, receptive as opposed to kind of hostile and shut down, I think it naturally spreads a kind of a spirit of open-ended inquiry. Let's figure it out together. Let's be a learning team. Let's be a thinking team. Um, and, and this gets into why it's important not to be condescending as to how one does it. If one does it respectfully with a real sense of curiosity, empathy, and love, um, then it can be fun and joyful to think together. And then I think it spreads naturally and spontaneously. Um, so my ideal world is one in where we don't even have to have schools after a while. We just have this culture of inquiry that is pervasive and everyone becomes an autodidact without much effort. Yep, that's, that's an incredible point. So I want to ask one more question related to questions. What is your latest realization in asking questions? Asking the right questions, to be precise. That's a good question. Um, I think the biggest one is just how sophisticated it is. I'm focused on training guides. And so the biggest one is how, how much my own question and asking ability is based on this huge knowledge map I've developed over decades and how difficult it is for less experienced people 
to ask the right questions when they have much smaller kind of uh, knowledge maps and understandings of the world. So it's it's what are the what are the conceptual prerequisites required to ask really good questions is something that's preoccupying me now. And what are these like, prerequisites? Well, some of it's domain specific. So, you know, in philosophy or in physics or in literature, uh, having experience. One way I think about it is uh, I've gone down lots and lots of rabbit holes in all sorts of domains. Um, so I kind of know, you know, free will versus determinism. Sometimes students want to, you know, are, are, do we have free will or is it deterministic? And I, uh, I can kind of predict certain paths that they're likely to take. And so as they go in a particular direction, I can think of the next question because I've seen this situation before. Whereas maybe say a you know, literature teacher who's never addressed this before, uh, he or she may have to think you know, moment by moment, which is still possible. But I think it's just easier if one has experience with kind of the garden of forking paths to use Borges analogy. Yeah. So what do you think is the future of education? It has a very basic question, but has different yeah. perspectives. I, I think the Prussian model that dominates the world is on its way out. It will take decades. Uh, it might take a century or more, but uh, I think maybe, I think it will become much less common in the next few decades. And I think there will be uh, a lot more emphasis on autodidacts, on mentors, on kind of cultural, I think cultural capital, that's, that's why I'm very interested in culture. For me, it's about health, creating healthy subcultures. Um, you know, basically I see with the availability of learning resources on the internet, if we can create cultures of um, autodidacts that spread spontaneously, then tech can indeed, people are excited about AI tutors. AI tutors are great if one initiates one's own learning, yeah. but if one expects to be passive and doesn't care about learning, I don't see AI as solving that. So I see our job as humans is to create these healthy subcultures of autodidacticism so all the tech can empower people in a positive way. Now, you know, you mentioned that it might take a century, and it will take. I believe that it will take a very, very long time to make the shift. Now, you have been in the education industry for more than 30 years. So what changes both positive and negative have you seen in this time from the 20th century to 21st century? No, great question. I, I think it's gone in the direction I've expected of more choice, more alternatives, more um, you know, self-directed education. And it's happened a lot more slowly than I had expected. I would say COVID accelerated things in the United States considerably. And I think part of that is people saw that uh, regular education was really bad. I was in a lot of public school classrooms in the 90s. I saw it was really awful then. But I think it really took COVID and online streaming of public school classrooms for most parents to realize nothing is happening there most of the time. Yep, that's that's incredible. Now I'll ask the last question to this podcast, basically dedicated to entrepreneurs and startup founders. And we have talked a lot about things which could help them. Now, now what is your one advice to anyone who is who wants to become a entrepreneur or is one? And one advice for learning, actually learning in general. Sure. For someone who wants to have an entrepreneur, I would say seek out, seek out mentors, take initiative, you know, engage in the world. I would say, you know, don't spend so much time studying it. This is where there's nothing like, uh, you know, this, this kid I know whose dad is a real estate business and he's doing financial models at the age of 11. He's on his path. I know he'll be an entrepreneur. So I think actually working with people and doing stuff. And if that means, uh, you know, dropping out of school or taking fewer classes or whatever, I would say work in the actual realm doing it. Start doing it ASAP. And in terms of learning, I think uh, realize that you don't need permission from anyone. There are resources. There are, there are people, most online forums, there's going to be somebody who's eager to help you learn. So uh, take advantage of the fact that basically learning, everything is free. Just in terms of courses, you can take hundreds of Ivy League courses for free online right now. Uh, Harvard CS50 Introduction to Computer Science, you can take Harvard's 
Introduction to Computer Science for free right now. So, you know, if you need the institutions of schooling for some external reason, government certification, your parents want you to go, whatever, okay. But as a learner, realize that there are absolutely no obstacles for you to learn anything you want for free today. You just need to take initiative and go out and make it happen. That's incredible advice. So I guess that's where, that's it from my side. Anything you'd like to say? No, no, just thank you so much, Advik. Really great questions. Uh, really nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, uh, if you want to have another conversation at some point, happy to happy to go to the next stage someday. So thank yeah, you. Sure.